you have your Bibles, would you open it, please, to Genesis chapter 3? I'm going to read just one verse from Genesis chapter 3. You'll find the book of Genesis hard to the left at the very beginning of your Bible. The third chapter. And verse 21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments, garments of skins, and clothed them. It is my purpose this morning to use this verse to talk, preach on the subject of God's grace. Let's pray. Lord, publish your name, I pray, to us again. If there are any here who are discouraged or deceived that somehow how good they were this week determines their acceptability before you, I pray that you would heal us in our despair and convict us in our pride and make Christ great to us. Grant us the gift of your spirit, the new birth from above, in order that we might experience not only the knowledge of our Lord, but the life of our Lord as well. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21 is not the first example of the grace of God in the Bible. As innocent as Adam and Eve were in the garden, I don't think that there's any way to explain how God could dwell, give his fellowship to them. As innocent as they were, outside of saying, that was grace. It was the grace of God that Adam and Eve experienced. But what this verse is, is the first revelation of the nature of grace as it is given to rebels. Ultimately, through the person and work of Christ. God gives to them what they could not earn. He gives to them what they did not deserve in order that God might dwell with them. Some people don't want the grace of God because they don't want God dwelling with them. That's just an annoyance. That would be a nuisance. But that's what the grace of God accomplishes. That's its eternal purpose. The new heaven and the new earth fulfill that purpose. That God would come down and dwell with his people. But my interest in this particular text is not just that it is the first occurrence of God making rebels acceptable to him by a purely universal or unilateral, not universal, <laughs> unilateral and sovereign act. But I want to draw attention to the narrative story. It's in Genesis chapter 3, as is obvious. And it is a narrative. And I'm interested in this verse for its close proximity to the revelation that Genesis 1 through 3 gives of divine realities, because I believe it's those divine realities that, that give grace its character, that give grace its nature, because of the close proximity that it is to the revelation of God in Genesis 1 through 3. We learn a lot about things by its proximity. 
What is it, what is it near? What is it close to? What is it associated with? And grace cannot ever be divorced from or lose its association with the divine revelation of God or it just becomes another religious word in the sea of intellectual and moral relativism. And so those divine realities must establish what does the word mean. I like listening to podcasts and news. I like the BBC. I think perhaps it's the accent that I hear that I'm a sucker for. And sometimes I I pray, Lord, why couldn't I have been born in Ireland? If I'm going to be a preacher, couldn't I have at least been born in Ireland? Alistair Begg is my favorite preacher. He's a Baptist man. He lives in the U.S., but I just love that accent. This particular BBC story was uh, interviewing two ladies who were uh, members in the Anglican Church, and as you know, there's a lot of very broad and intense discussions that are going on in the Anglican Church right now. And these two women that were being interviewed were on two different sides, two different sides of one of the discussions that the church is having at the time. I think it had to do with the ordination of women priests, which which isn't my point. My point was that the in the discussion itself, one of the women was articulating her point, and the, when she spoke, she would say things like this. The scriptures tell us, the word of God says, and it was, it was one of the most articulate and, and, and sensible explanations of a point. Whether you disagreed with her or agreed with her or not, you could see that where her point came from. And all that was said on the other side of the argument was this. Well, I don't think that's what the grace of God looks like. And that's all that she, that's all, that's all that was said. The great, I don't think that's what the grace of God looks like. Oh no, the grace of God would never do that. No, the grace of God would, would, would not be like that. There's a kind of faith that I call a designer faith. What a designer faith is, it's a faith, it's a faith, it's a belief that takes words and it, and it designs them in house. <laughs> it's a designer faith. And it doesn't necessarily seem to matter in designer faith if that, if the, if the words we use, if they have any actual correspondence to realities that are outside of ourselves to determine. And that's a designer faith. They're very different than a biblical faith, which is absolutely, 100% completely concerned with not just what do I believe, what do I hold to, what are my convictions, but do those beliefs and convictions, do they have any correspondence to something outside of myself about something that is actually really true? And I don't want a designer faith. I hate religion for religion's sake. If there's no divine realities, you know what we should all do right now? Run. Run as fast as we can. Because we're just playing games. Sometimes I cringe when I hear people start a sentence with, I think the grace of God all the social issues that we're facing right now in our our world. And I try to sometimes figure out in my mind, what, what do they mean by the word when they pick up the word grace? And the best that I can describe what they seem to mean by the use of the word grace sometimes is, has to do with, with God's broad-mindedness. 
That grace is somehow God learning to get with the times. That it's God's ability to, to learn and accept that we in our, our sophisticated and modern society have learned to consider to be normal. You see, we're broad-minded, so it's the very least that, that to expect that God himself should be broad-minded. There must be a TV in heaven, right? Surely God's able to learn about the kinds of things that we now accept. I'm not here to mock that. I'm here to state it as a reality that we experience in our culture. I'm here to say that I don't agree with it. but that it deeply concerns me. And as wrong as it is, I want to also say this, that it would be just as wrong for the church to say, well, that frustrates me, and to give up on grace as if there is any other way for the church of Jesus Christ to be what it is and to do what it is called to do. There is no other way for the church to be the church other than to be immersed in the grace of God. For us to multiply is by the grace of God. For us to live as Christians, with Christian character, not not just Christian conduct, but Christian conduct that follows from Christian character. There is no other way to teach that kind of life. For us to be united. For us to be generous hearted and live in unity in our homes, in our marriages, in our families. There is no other way other than we understand the grace of God and be taught by this, that this is how God has treated me in Jesus Christ. I want to hear it every week. Because I don't want to just be reaffirmed what I already believe. I want to be continually trained in it. Because it's the grace of God only that can transform not only my horizontal relationships, but my vertical relationship with God. And God calls me to love Him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength calls me to love others as myself. I can't be trained to do those things outside of being immersed and grasping how God has treated me in Jesus Christ. Listen to these words from Titus chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And listen to this next word, training us. The grace of God has not appeared only for salvation, but for training 
for training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Wonderful. There is no other, there is no other mechanism for the church to use. There's no other way for pastors to pastor in order to help families, in order to help people in whatever their needs might be, other than to say, are you knowing, are you experiencing, are you grasping how God has treated you in Jesus Christ? There are other things that can be picked up, but not and continue to call ourselves the church of Jesus Christ. We can pick up law, we can pick up self-righteousness, we can pick up legalism, we can pick up the therapeutic, we can pick up the emotional, we can pick up... uh, business management, we can pick up leadership theory, we can pick up pragmatism. There's a lot of different things that can be done if we're lazy about understanding our responsibility that people be trained in the grace of God. The grace of God is the air that you breathe in the kingdom of God. It's the way that we instinctively know how to live and act in every single situation because the Bible doesn't list every circumstance that we will ever face in life. It's not a how-do book. It's a revelation. It's a revelation of a God who shows grace. Can someone tell me what the last words of the Bible are? Amen. <laughs> That's great. I love that. He's right. Does anybody know what the last words of the Bible are before amen? (laughs) I was a eschatological agnostic for many years, and I feared the book of Revelation. As a pastor, I thought, well, I'm just going to stay away from it because it'll just divide the church. It'll make people unhappy to go through the book. Nobody can agree on the book. And anybody who visits the church, they'll say, oh, you're one of those churches when you open the book of Revelation. And I became convicted of that. That the book is not for intellectuals. The book is not for prophecy gurus. The book is for pastors because it was written for by a pastor for the church. And the message from that pastor who was in prison for his church was this. Be a lamb follower. And you know what else you need to know, church? You know that not only is there a lamb to follow, but there is an imitation of the lamb. You will find that in, in, in your experience living as a Christian in this world that there is an imitation. And you know what else? I am your brother in the tribulation of this world and that tribulation is pressure to follow the beast. That's what the tribulation is. And I want you to know that Jesus is Lord. I want you to see it in all of these different Old Testament ways that God has already told us that, that, that He is supreme over all things. I want you to know that that's about Jesus Christ. And as a pastor, he finishes the book, he finishes the Bible, and he says, may the grace of God, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. I love that. I walked into my home a couple days ago, and I found on the fridge... We've lost something with this new fridge we have. You know, how many of you grew up with, with just stuff stuck all over your fridge? And because it, it is a magnet and you could stick people, stick people, pictures of people. 
on your fridge? I mean, how many missionaries are losing out on prayers every day because they have a fridge like I do that's got wood panels on it and you can't put magnets on it and you can't put pictures of people on it. I grew up with missionaries pinned all over my mother's fridge. But taped on my fridge when I came home a couple days ago was a, was a message in large letters that said, Boot Camp for Deus. My, Deus is my dog. And it's a, it's a 10-month-old cross of, uh, what is it? I forget. Oh, she's gone. It's a bull mastiff. That's what it is. Thanks, Paul. You were there in early service. And it's a stubborn thing, and I'm getting frustrated with it. Because when I say come, it doesn't come. And it just we've had 10 months of it, and I think it's time. I think it's time for you to come when I say come. Boot camp for death. I was a little concerned when I saw the sign that it might read boot camp for Barry. But fortunately, it, the boot camp is for the dog. Anyways, the, the, the point of the boot camp is this. It, it's, a, it's a dog training theory that my family is trying to teach me about how to so take the dog for a walk more than once a day. And every time you walk the dog, never take it off the leash. And never allow the dog on a leash to ever walk in front of you and only make sure that it only ever walks behind you or beside you. And it says, this is the theory, that if you can, if you can train a dog to a leash that way, that it will correct instinctively a number of other behavioral problems that you have in the home. <laughs> so the dog is going to boot camp. But that is what grace is. If we can be trained in grace, we will instinctively know how to live in so many areas of our lives. So that's what I want you to understand about this particular text this morning. Not only is it a message on grace, but I want to establish that it is, a, it is a message on what God does for sinners as it relates to God himself and the close proximity that it has to the narrative, the divine realities. Because those divine realities establish the nature and the character of grace. As much as we say we need grace, we must have grace, it's the air that we breathe saying, well, what is it? Who defines what it is? And that's why I like this passage in Genesis 3, for that close proximity to God. And this is what Genesis 1 2 through 3 says, that, that God exists. This is simple, but we live in a culture that doesn't necessarily believe these things anymore. Often they know that they should, but they don't want to because it's better if they don't have to, they think. And we live in a culture that has so much reinforcement for people who think, I would rather not believe. Which is a huge 
thing for the church to address. That God exists. That God created. That God spoke. And that God kept the word that he spoke. In other words, God judged. The reason that people differ in their view of grace is because they differ in their fundamental understandings of the world, of the world in which they walk, and, and of themselves and their place in this world. So ultimately, when we talk about grace and differ on, on the meaning, we're, we're not really talking about what does the word grace mean. We're talking about how do, I, how do I understand the world around me? Where did it come from? And so people have different lenses through which they view the world and they have different world views. And to win the war for grace, as I said, there's no other alternative but to win the war for grace. It means also to win the battles. You know, to win a war, you have to win battles. To win the war for grace, you have to win the battles for the knowledge of God. That's a big battle in our culture right now. But if we lose the battle in the knowledge of God, we win the war. We lose the war. On grace. Because it's the knowledge of God that gives us the proper lens to see ourselves for who we really are. And to understand the world around us the way that it really is. And if grace is divorced from the divine realities. Then it means so very, very little. Let me go through briefly these four things. Because in Genesis 1 through 3, we find God. Don't read Genesis 1 through 3 unless you're prepared to find God. Not as you think he should be or think he might be, but as he really is. One of my favorite lines that I heard somebody say years ago, I think he was a musician or or an arts type person, and he said, in my field, it's really cool to be searching for God. But he said, it's not so cool to find God. And it's true. It's cool to look for God, but it's, it's not cool to find Him. It's not cool. But in Genesis 1 through 3, it's exactly what we find. We find God. God exists. So simple. Yet the skepticism and agnosticism in the movies that people watch the news, the way that it is presented, the worldview of those who give us our information, teach in our schools. Thank God for Christian teachers. Genesis establishes the simple truth of God's free and autonomous existence prior to anything else in the beginning God that means that however God acts whatever God does do we know this that because he is God what he does and the way that he acts is not conditioned by what we think he should do or are convinced that he must do There's a profound difference between, in the view of grace, between a God who we think should love us 
It's our opinion that, that that's just the way God should be. That's, that's our conviction. That, that's just the way God should act. He should be this way towards us. There's a vast difference between that kind of thinking about God and a God who is, who is absolutely free from our demands. But in that freedom, in that autonomy, in the perfection that is God, thank God we're not autonomous, but in, in the majestic holiness of God that is free, He chooses to love. That's completely different. And just thanking him that he fulfills my opinion, what he should be. God created. Genesis 1 through 3 establishes the reality of God's omnipotent and sovereign creation of all things. You know, we're more than just warm skin bags walking around. Complex. But really, that's what it boils down to, isn't it? Just a complex bunch of organs in a warm bag of skin. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that, that is so fundamental to so many different things about how we understand ourselves, how we understand the world around us. But fundamentally, the reality, the divine reality is ownership. And our understanding of grace, which involves questions of how to use our own bodies and how to use the things of this world, will be vastly different if we have the perspective that our bodies and everything we pick up and handle and use belongs to God. We're just stewards of everything. So simple, yet so fundamental to Christian worship. The disposition of the heart to say, you're a creator. And make that distinction, so important distinction between the creator and the created. God spoke. Genesis not only establishes that God created, but that he he spoke. And the divine reality in God speaking is that he governs all that he made. He said to Adam and Eve, you may eat from all of the trees of the garden, but from the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat. God governs all that he makes. In other words, all that God made, all the things that he spoke into existence, he also spoke about how to use them, what to do with them. Yes, he is concerned. Yes, he cares about how we live in his world. That again is a disposition of the heart. See, that's why we need grace to, to change our hearts. How to enjoy all that God has made. And we are to enjoy all that God has made. He speaks about. But that's not all. Another divine reality is the reality that not only did God speak, but he kept his word. He kept his word. And we see that in the divine activity of judgment. God told Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of the tree, you shall what? Die. By the way, you know what? Ever think about the fruit? It wasn't some weird magical fruit. It wasn't some strange apple that, wow, you eat it and it was something in it that, that, that did something. What was, what was special about the fruit is that the, and this is unilaterally determined by God, 
that it had the commandment of God attached to it. That was what was special about the fruit. And in eating the fruit, it wasn't the fruit that, that, that changed their, their lives. It was the disobeyment of the commandment that changed their lives. And Adam and Eve didn't wake up the next morning to find out that God felt differently. They didn't wake up to hear God say to them, Oh, that. You didn't think I really meant that, did you? That little bit about the fruit? I'm not a cruel God. I wouldn't hold my word to you. Grace has nothing to do with a God who changes his mind. From dust you have come, and to dust you shall return. It's in these divine realities that Adam and Eve now find themselves standing. They know that God is there. They know that God's prerogative in creation, that he owns all things. They know this. They're not skeptics. They're not agnostics. They're not relativists. They they know this. They know that God has spoken. They know that God keeps his word regarding all that he has spoken. And now when they most know, when they most understand, when they're most experiencing, that in the light of those divine realities, that this should be the end of their story. It's not. I don't know how many times I have felt that in my Christian life. Lord, this, this should be the end of my story. I can do nothing to gain acceptability with God. And, you know, the older I get, the more I'm learning about my true condition. And when they most know and experience that that it should be the end of the story, it's not. And grace means that, that God finds a way to dwell with them to make them acceptable to him. And when they most wish they could be something other than what they are. Ever wish you could be something other than what you are? It's a wish of pride, but I'm sure Adam and Eve at this point wished they still were the persons they were yesterday. That's why we put on masks. That's why we do what Adam and Eve first did, clothe ourselves with things that we can find in the world. Because we don't want people to know the way that we really are. And it's no surprise when Christ came into the world, the people that he purposed to die for, who we really are is no surprise to him. But we're still discovering who we really are and what our real condition really is. But he does not show his grace to the person that we wish that we were, but he shows his grace in the condition that we are really in, which is rebels deserving eternal death. Here's my application. I want you to consider anew and afresh and be renewed in a knowledge of grace, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And I want you to commit to going through this week 
prayerfully asking God to understand the implications. In a world in which he has made, in a world in which he has spoken about, that you would not go into it with law, that you would not go into it with fear, but that you would go into it after this Lord's day of worship, convinced of your acceptability with God based on his work alone, but that it transforms completely. It trains you differently in your relationship with God and your relationship with others. I point to Jesus Christ because that is why he came also to fulfill what Genesis chapter 3 points to as a bloody sacrifice to clothe us with his righteousness. And I would point this out also, that however you may understand the New Testament, that the death of Jesus Christ also, just like in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, that death also is in close proximity to those same divine realities. However you understand the life of Christ and how to read the Gospels and pick up the Gospels and understand what is going on in the Gospels, the most important message about the Gospels is this, is that Jesus came to say, to, to confirm and reproclaim in himself those very same divine realities. I am that God of Genesis chapter 1 through 3. That's me. I am Yahweh. I am the God who exists. That's what the miracles were all about. That's what His sovereign dominion over creation has shown in all of His miracles. It's not for our imitation. It's for our worship. This is the sovereign God who has come. The God who is. The God who has made all things. The God who has spoken. The God who keeps His word. I am that God. And I lay down my life as a sacrifice to clothe you with what I alone can give you. Yeah, hallelujah, amen. That's my application. Please, worship Christ. Not just today, but the entire week. Let's pray.